Ted Cruz has named former Hewlett Packard CEO Carly Fiorina to be his vice president, though some are calling this a desperate move to revive his flagging campaign after his massive losses in eastern primaries. Senator Cruz said, quote, they'll change their tune when they realize the delegate Carly controls is now mine, all mine. Cruz supporters said that Fiorina will also help the Cruz campaign because she's a woman, which means she can get away with saying nasty things about Hillary Clinton, like she's got nothing going for her except playing the woman card, or if Hillary can't even satisfy her husband, how's she going to satisfy America? Of course, Donald Trump has already gotten away with saying those things by simply being a boorish thug. But Cruz said, quote, we couldn't find any boorish thugs who weren't already committed to Trump, so we had to settle for a woman. Cruz added that he will soon pick out the tie he'll wear for his inauguration speech and some new carpeting for the Oval Office. Candidate John Kasich has also selected a running mate. Kasich said he's chosen Cinderella to share the ticket with him, but he notes this is the Cinderella from the original animated version, not the one from the recent live-action remake. While the live-action Cinderella was very beautiful, Kasich said, only the cartoon one can really capture the fantasy and romance that is my presidential campaign. Donald Trump, meanwhile, has not yet selected a vice presidential candidate and says he may decide to fill the role himself. After all, I'm the best man for both jobs, says Trump, and this way, if I should die while serving as president, I can just take my own place. On the Democrat side, Hillary Clinton is reportedly searching for a vice presidential candidate who will make her look a little more likable by comparison. So far, she's interviewed a screeching pterodactyl, an Islamic terrorist, and the possessed girl from the movie The Exorcist. The exorcist girl reportedly turned down the position, saying, It's one thing to have the Lord of all evil clutch my soul in a stranglehold of obscenity and hatred, but listening to Hillary's voice for four years would be more than I could stand. As for the Islamic terrorist, he spoke to Hillary for two and a half hours and then blew himself up, although possibly he was going to do that anyway. Bernie Sanders, meanwhile, has fired much of his campaign staff. He says the move is in keeping with his principles because the staff started out with high, unrealistic hopes and ended up unemployed. So now they have a better understanding of how socialism really works. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. <laughs> a lot of political news today. <laughs> we just, I think we've covered it. We can go home. I think that's it. All right, we've reached the end of the week. I'm telling you, these weeks go... Slipping by, this this election is so entertaining that it's so much fun to talk about that I just I, the weeks just go right by. So we're going to talk about all the political news, but but we're also going to tell you how to make yourself miserable. This is very important information because Ben Shapiro, as you know, has been off all week for Passover. Uh, so many of you have been getting very happy, and we've got to put an end to that immediately. The one thing you may want to do that will uh, help you be also, if you want to be more happy, you might try subscribing to our podcast. Then you get to watch them, uh, not only listen to them, and you would get to see the hilarious thing that I'm doing right now. See, you couldn't see that, but it was incredible. It was just incredible. So subscribe. And also, it, it means you can uh, send us messages, and we'll have you on the show. We'll let your, get your questions on the show. So it's a good deal. You can do it right on the podcast page at The Daily Wire. All right. Ted Cruz picks Carly Fiorina. It's April. I don't know if a, a presidential candidate has ever picked his vice president this this early, but obviously, you know, people are immediately are saying it's a desperation move, right? So here's here's Megyn Kelly talking to Carly after the announcement. But what do you say to those like <laughs> Trump who say it was a desperation play by Senator Cruz? Well, of course, Donald Trump would say that. Donald Trump has been trying to say that Ted Cruz should get out of the race for a very long time. 
The only thing is Donald Trump hasn't won this nomination yet, despite so many people in the media just wishing it would all be over and he would be our nominee. But as I said in my speech, I do think this is about the soul of our party and the future of our nation. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are virtually indistinguishable in their positions. They are virtually indistinguishable in the fact that they have always been insiders to this corrupt system of crony capitalism and selling access and influence. And he cannot be our nominee. And if he were to be our nominee, Hillary Clinton would be our president. And that is a future that I'm not prepared to lay by and allow to have happen. So here's what I don't understand. All day yesterday, all I heard was, this is a desperation move. It's a Hail Mary pass. It's a desperate. The guy's desperate. So, I mean, he's, he's fighting for his political life. If, if he loses in Indiana next week, he's pretty much finished. Cruz is pretty much finished. He's got to make whatever move he's going to make now. It's like, saying to, it's like saying to a quarterback in a football game who, who maybe throws a Hail Mary pass in the last five seconds, that was a Hail Mary pass. It's the last five seconds. What did you want me to do? Stand by and look calm? You know, I didn't want to throw a long pass because I didn't want people to think I was desperate. So my take on this is, is it a good move or is it a bad move? I think my take is very simple. It's a bad move, and it's the best move he could make. He didn't have all that many choices. It probably would have been a better idea if he could have waited. Uh, he was, had lost total control of the news cycle because of all these relentless victories that we knew were coming. They, we knew where they were coming, but it doesn't matter. I mean, I told you two weeks ago, these are the two weeks of electoral darkness that we're going into where Trump is going to win, win, win. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if I tell you. It doesn't matter if you know it's coming. It still has the same psychological effect. He had to take control of the news cycle, and he had to do something that might help. And I, I think Fiorina is a good choice. I, first of all, I really like her. She's an excellent campaigner. She's an extraordinarily intelligent and presentable person when she talks. She makes a lot of good sense. She can. She is a woman and can and does relentlessly attack Hillary Clinton. There's a lot of talk about picking people who can win you important states, Kasich in Ohio, uh, Marco Rubio in Florida. You know, I think that's old political wisdom. I think that the world has become a little bit, our country has become a little bit more nationalized than that. Rubio didn't win Florida. I mean, Rubio doesn't, can't control Florida. Kasich did win Ohio, but can you imagine being stuck on the bus with Kasich? I mean, come on, come on. I think she's a good choice. And she got up when she was announced, and she, she apparently sings lullabies to Cruz's kids on the campaign bus. Talk about a pitiful, so, so here she is telling, singing the lullaby for us. I know two girls that I just adore. <laughs> So happy I can see them more. Cause we travel on the bus all day. We get to play. We get to play. I won't bore you with any more of this. All right, the campaign is in big trouble. I'm sorry. Actually, I was thrilled that we had a candidate who actually knows an Irving. That's that old Irving Berlin song. I hear singing, but there's no one there. I smell, but it's a, it's a duet. I thought, I thought Ted Cruz should have done the Ethel Merman part. He should have come dancing on the back. And you don't need analyzing. I mean, we'd have, won, we'd have won everything. He'd have won the nomination. Anyway, why can't things be more like my imagination? I don't understand why, why these guys can't do that. Something about the image of Ted Cruz doing Ethel Merman is worthwhile. All right, so that was that was them. And then we had the Donald who put forward the Donald Doctrine. He made a speech. 
Now, this was really interesting to me, because one of the things about politics that is so fascinating is not just the politicians, not just the actual substance, but we live in this world of commentary, which has become meta-commentary. People are comment, commenting on what things are going to look like to the commentators, you know, so that, that people say, like, well, the, you know, the Donald was make, wanted to show that he could make a speech off a teleprompter, so... People know he can read. I don't know, you know, but but you know, so he doesn't make these rambling, insulting kind of silly speeches where he goes off and talks about things he doesn't know anything about. So this morning, uh, obviously, I'm reading all the, you know, the reactions to the speech. This is his foreign policy. He's laying out the Donald Doctrine, and it was very, you know, it was really predictable and kind of character revealing. First of all, his supporters, Ann Coulter, Laura Ingram, uh, there was a general. I mean, Ann Coulter sent out a tweet, and God knows I love Ann to death, but she sent out a tweet. This was the best foreign policy speech since Washington's farewell or something like this. I, I think that was George Washington, not like Isaiah Washington. You know, it was like, you know, <laughs> I, think, I don't know what. And, and Laura Ingram, I, I noticed it was interesting. Laura Ingram sent out a tweet saying that was the most important, you know, uh, foreign policy address since I can't remember what her comparison was. But then I noticed when she was on the Fox News panel, she kind of dialed it back a little because on the other side, on the other side, they were picking they were picking at the address. They were saying it didn't fit together. He contradicted himself and all this. I didn't think that was true either, by the way. I mean, I, I gave the speech kind of a B minus. The funny thing about the speech to me was even though it was written, it had all the faults and strengths of Donald Trump when he's talking. It was, for, for instance, for instance, one, the thing that, one thing that Trump is really good at is describing problems without being p politic about it. I mean, I think that's what everybody really likes about him, even those people who hate him. Admit, when he goes after Hillary Clinton for being corrupt, you know, for when he calls her, whatever he calls her now, uh, dirty Hillary, crooked Hillary, crooked Hillary, you know, uh, she is crooked. That's that's very accurate and very good, and, and he describes the problem. So play, uh, I think, the third Trump cut. He, you know, he starts out and he talks about the Middle East, and without fear or favor, he blames it on both Bush and Obama, or as he calls him, Obama Clinton, which which is fair enough since Clinton was the Secretary of State. So here he's describing the problems with our foreign policy. It all began with a dangerous idea that we could make Western democracies out of countries that had no experience or interest in becoming a Western democracy. We tore up what institutions they had and then were surprised at what we unleashed. Civil war, religious fanaticism, Thousands of Americans and just killed lives, 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 wasted, horribly wasted. Many trillions of dollars were lost as a result. The vacuum was created that ISIS would fill. Iran, too, would rush in and fill that void, much to their really unjust enrichment. They have benefited so much, so sadly for us. Our foreign policy is a complete and total disaster. No vision, no purpose, no direction, no strategy. So, you know, he said people were attacking him for saying, for contradicting himself because he said we need a coherent foreign policy, but we need to be unpredictable. And they said, well, that's a contradiction. But it's not. I, you know, I think we all know exactly what he means. We do need a coherent foreign policy, and we do need to, you know, strike without warning and all this stuff. You know, I, I, I thought that they were picking on him. I mean, I thought that they, 
And this is me talking. I think he's a terrible guy. I don't support him. But let's get, you know, let's let's read it the way he said it. I thought he was described the problems well. He also said something that I thought that kind of made me perk up because it's something people don't talk about very much. He talked about the relationship between the economy and our military. I mean, this is something people don't talk about. If you don't have a good economy, you're not going to have a good military. And that's the problem we're having now. Right now is Obama is gutting our military to save an economy that is completely underwater despite the way it looks like. And I'll get back to that in a minute. But play the first Trump cut, Trump one. President Obama has weakened our military by weakening our economy. He's crippled us with wasteful spending, massive debt, low growth, a huge trade deficit and open borders. Our manufacturing trade deficit with the world is now approaching $1 trillion a year. We're rebuilding other countries while weakening our own. Ending the theft of American jobs will give us resources we need to rebuild our military, which has to happen, and regain our financial independence and strength. I am the only person running for the presidency who understands this, and this is a serious problem. I'm the only one, believe me, I know them all, I'm the only one that knows how to fix it. Now, this is where he starts to lose me, okay? Now, I, I, I thought, you know, I thought when he's describing the problems, this is what he always does. I alone can fix it. And this is why when I see, you know, Ann Coulter talking about George Washington, comparing Donald Trump to George Washington, I mean, really? Really? I mean, you know, I alone can fix it. I mean, you know, when I hear that, there are certain things that, that make me reach for my wallet, you know, to protect my wallet. When I see a preacher on the Trinity Network telling me that the world is going to end unless I send him money, you know, that, the, I, that I can prevent the apocalypse if I send him money, or I can heal my diseases if I send him money, I just put my hand on my wallet. When I see Barack Obama or anybody on the left start telling me that the climate is going to destroy us all unless we give them the power to tax and to take control of our energy resources and to guide, you know, take over our businesses, I reach for my wallet. I, you know, when somebody tells me that the disaster is coming, I alone can fix it. I'm, I'm sorry. I immediately get suspicious. I'm, you know, and it may be, it may be they're right, but I just get suspicious. Now, what's driving our debt? Our debt is being driven by entitlements. He is, has said he is not going to fix entitlements. He has just looked us in the eye and told us nothing wrong here. The problem is our economy. Now, he's, t he's saying that by starting a trade war with China and, and other countries, somehow, you know, he's going to raise tariffs so that manufacturing is forced back into our country. But he forgets to point out that that's going to mean a cut in wages, right? Your wages, Americans' wages haven't gone up since Clinton. They're lower. They're $4,000 lower than they were under the first Clinton administration, Bill Clinton administration. You know, that when everything is more expensive and all your jobs are back, all the jobs are back here, all the manufacturing back here, things are going to be sky, the price of things is going to skyrocket. And I don't understand why he thinks that's going to change the debt. I just don't see it. And no economist has explained it to me. And so even though he's right to connect our economy with our military, you know, this I alone can fix it stuff, I just think it's babbling nonsense. <laughs> and I just, and it makes me, I think it should make everybody suspicious. I think it should make everybody say, okay, you know, 
I'm sorry, backup. Explain that to me. All right, now he goes into his, that's, that's the negative stuff, which is really his forte. He's really good at talking about the negative stuff. Now he announces his policy. It's America first. Everything is going to be in American interests. Let's listen to that. No country has ever prospered that failed to put its own interests first. Both our friends and our enemies put their countries above ours. And we, while being fair to them, must start doing the same. We will no longer surrender this country or its people to the false song of globalism. The nation-state remains the true foundation for happiness and harmony. I am skeptical of international unions that tie us up and bring America down and will never enter. And under my administration, we will never enter America into any agreement that reduces our ability to control our own affairs. You know, fair enough. I, I mean, yesterday I tweeted out, you know, that America first was the slogan of Charles Lindbergh's movement before World War II, where he was Charles Lindbergh. Charles Lindbergh was a great man. I mean, if you read a biography of him, he did amazing things for aviation. I don't think he was a true anti-Semite, but he was kind of mesmerized by Hitler. Hitler came along. He was the strong man. He took over the German economy. He got the German economy working again. After all, Lindbergh wasn't in Germany. He went over to meet Hitler. He's kind of charmed by him. And he thought, no, we shouldn't go to war against this guy. He's a good guy. So I tweeted out that this America First slogan, we've heard this before. I wasn't comparing Trump to Hitler, but I was saying, you know, like, why would you take this slogan from a movement that was proved wrong. It was proved to be wrong, that it was proved by, by putting America first. Uh, America wasn't coming first. Well, Twitter went nuts. I mean, I was attacked last relentlessly yesterday. And the anti-Semitism from these Trump people, I mean, it, it was amazing. I just, I really have to say, I wonder what it's like to wake up with that stuff in your heart. It cannot be a happy experience. I mean, it must make you so miserable. And, and just as a point of order, I just want to point out, you know, I was born and raised a Jew. I'm also a Christian. And this is important. I don't say this so you'll stop hating me for being a Jew. I just say this so that when you're in hell for being a lousy anti-Semite, you'll realize I'm at the big party. <laughs> not, only, not only is a demon repeatedly driving a fiery spike into your eye, but I'm drinking Coke. So <laughs> I just want to point that out. And, and so anyway... If you want to know why, I mean, this stuff is simple. Of course, America should follow its own interests. I mean, of course it should. I, I think that that's fine. I didn't uh, object to that. I think, uh, I think it's silly to take this old, worn-out slogan. But I just want to remind you of what Everything is relative, right, in, in politics. I want to remind you of what people have been listening to for these past seven years. Here's Barack Obama back in the day being asked about victory in Afghanistan. I, I, I'm always you know, worried about using the word victory because you know, it evokes this notion of Emperor Hirohito coming down and signing you know, a surrender to MacArthur. You know, we're not dealing with nation states. Uh, at this point, we're concerned with Al Qaeda and the Taliban, uh, Al Qaeda's allies. So, when you have a uh, non-state actor, uh, a shadowy operation like Al Qaeda, uh, our goal is to make sure they can't attack the United States. Now, I think that's going to require constant vigilance. What a pansy! 
I mean, what a pansy this guy is. He cannot even talk about victory. He can't talk about victory. And don't please don't tell me that that's a gay slur. I know plenty of gays who aren't pansies at all. But this guy is a weak, effeminate man who can't. Look, I don't think an adult should ever get in a fight. I don't think an adult should ever get in a physical fight. You should be too grown up to be in a physical fight. But, but. If you are in a physical fight, victory is the point. That's the only point. The point is to get out of it and win. And when you listen to that for eight years, when you listen to eight years of, of Barack Obama saying, well, we don't want a victory. I mean, that would, be, that would be a terrible thing to have a victory. You know, a guy got, getting up and talking about America first has a lot of resonance. It just, it works. It works. And it's all relative to this. You know, this is true on the economy, too, by the way. When you talk about Trump, I alone can fix it. You know, we've been listening today. The New York Times had an interview with Barack Obama about the economy. And the, the idea of the interview was this. The economy is going so well, you know, 5% unemployment, and, you know, we, we didn't have a terrible depression, and after the 2008 crash, everything came back. You know, why is everybody so unhappy about the economy? So they asked Obama, and I almost don't have to read this to you because you know what he said. This is Obama responding to that. First of the Times says, there are, of course, many reasons so few Americans seem to be celebrating. And here's Obama. How people feel about the economy, Obama told me, told the reporter, giving one part of his own theory, is influenced by what they hear. He went on, and if you have a political party, in this case the Republicans, that denies any progress and is constantly channeling to their base, which is sizable, say 40% of the population, that things are terrible all the time, then people will start absorbing that. So the problem is not the economy. It's not Obama's policies. It's, not, it's none of this. It's not this tremendous debt, this skyrocketing, unbelievable debt that your grandchildren won't, will still be laboring under. It's not the fact that what is it now? More people are out of the workplace than since the 70s, since Jimmy Carter's 70s. More people are out of the workplace. So this 5% unemployment is bogus. It's closer to 20%. As, as Donald Trump himself says, people wouldn't be showing up for his rallies if there was 5% unemployment. It's just that people are being told by these nasty Republicans that things are bad. Let me tell you, the economy is the most visceral part of politics. The one thing you know is whether you're happy economically. Nobody can come along when you're living on the street and saying, hey, you know, things are going great. You don't need, and nobody, you know, during the Reagan years, during the Reagan years, we heard all about how terrible the economy was, but everything was good. People were good. People had jobs. The growth was like 9%. I mean, growth now, the, the growth today with, with the report was like half a percent. So what was it? It was almost nothing, basically. And you know, people know. You know when you're doing well. You know when your job is secure. You know, you could even tell. You could tell during the Reagan years because people in shops weren't as polite to you anymore because they knew they could get another job. You know, <laughs> it's like during the, during the Obama years, people are real nice to you in shops because they don't know where they're going. They lose that job. They don't know where they're going. The economy, you know, the economy is better than it was in 2008 when it crashed. But we are living on a knife's edge and everybody knows it. Middle class people are living paycheck to paycheck. People are working harder. Older people are working longer and harder. And this is, is Obama just never paid attention to this. He kept saying, I'm going to pivot to jobs. He never did. So, you know, this is why Trump sounds better than he is. I thought I gave this speech maybe a B minus, maybe a C plus. I, I thought it was, it, it suffered from all of Trump's 
uh, non-detail, kind of vague idea of what's going on. Uh, he really doesn't know what it's, you know, he says, oh, we're going to make our allies pay for their protection. That's a good idea. But what are we going to do if they're attacked? Not defend them. We're going to not defend France if it doesn't pay for it. <laughs> France, you know, you lose France. What, you know, what difference does it make? You know, I mean, it just he just acted as if the world is a very simple place. And I think that that is his appeal. So we're talking about how miserable it makes you to hate people. Just to go back to this for a second. I saw there, there is a video going around. My, my friend Steven Crowder, wonderful comedian. He is, has a, a website called Louder with Crowder. He does a podcast. It's very funny. I've been on it a couple times. Steven went to UMass Amherst with Milo Yiannopoulos, the uh, flagrantly gay anti-social justice warrior, very funny, eloquent uh, British guy, and, and Christina Hoffsommers, our own beloved Christina Hoffsommers, who we're all crazy about, who was on the show. And they go to give a speech, basically taking down the social justice warriors. And of course, the social justice warriors show up and they start to shout them down because it's the idea of the left that there's their opinion and then there's evil. There's their point of view, and then there's hatred. It's not like we should have a discussion. It's not like we should have an argument. It's, 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 there's only one point of view. And it's great. That's a great system. It's a great system because you never have to prove yourself. You never have to say, like, hey, how come all the blacks are moving out of our cities when we're so anti-racist? You know, how come that's happening? How come our cities look like Detroit and their cities look like Dallas? You know, how come, how come they're doing so well and we're doing so badly? You don't have to do that. All you have to do is point at the nearest conservative and make that Donald Sutherland noise from Invasion of the Body Snatch. And that's the only th thing you have. So I just wanted you to take a look. Before I show you the rest of this clip, I want you to take a look at one of these hecklers who is, is screaming. And uh, if you haven't subscribed, you can't see this, but she is quite a piece of work. She looks like a Mack truck, and she is shrieking. Listen to this. And later on, later on, Christina says to her, you know, try to control yourself. And she screams, you're talking to us like a child. You're talking to me like a child. She screams. And Christina says, well, you're acting like a child. All right? So this goes on and on and on. And I just wanted you to think about, does that woman look happy? Does she look like she has made the world a happier place or made her life a happier place? This goes on. Finally, Crowder gets up, and Crowder has had it. I mean, and Crowder just turns on this guy. It's like I'm only going to play a little excerpt. It's a four-minute-long video. It's worth – it's gone viral. It's almost up to a million hits. Crowder goes up and goes after these guys. Listen to this. Do you have any idea, sir, how pathetic it must be to be you? These people wanted to come out and have a good time, hear a few jokes, some thoughtful discussion, but your head pops off the pillow in the morning with, oh, how can I be a professional victim today? Let me go in. And screw with their act just because, oh my God, your parents didn't tell you that your opinion wasn't worth that much. Look, look, they're confused. They're confused. You know why? Because I'm not your gender studies professor who has to cater to your trigger warning, microaggression, safe space bullshit. I didn't want to do this. I wanted to come out and tell a few jokes. You created this monster. We have to go. Ten more minutes of this. Let this reverberate. Let it be a life lesson. This monster right here that you're so afraid of, the face you see in your nightmares, was created by social justice warrior assholes like you. And now you have, and now you have this wonderful faggot. That's what happens. We okay? We good? Yeah, we can. Yeah. Darling, you can call me what you like. <laughs> 
<laughs> you gotta got love Milo. As <laughs> darling, you can call me what you like. <laughs> I just, I just love that. And so that's what he, he's pointing. You couldn't see this because you haven't subscribed yet, but he's pointing to Milo and going, this guy, you know, who's a, a gay anti-social justice warrior guy, he was created by you. So I'm looking at this and I'm thinking like, you know, these are, these are young people. They should be relatively happy. <laughs> you know, they should be relatively happy. And I was thinking about them and I was thinking about these guys screaming Jew, Jew, Jew on Twitter. You know, there's an, an article I came across a little while ago. They, they call them like life hacks. They're little pieces of advice. And usually, most advice is pretty good advice because, because there are only a few things that work. There are only a few things that make people happy. They're, they're all the same. And so these, these guys get paid to put them in different ways. But here's an article. It's called Almost Everyone Who Is Unhappy With Life is unhappy for the same reasons. This is just a self-help article on the internet. Almost everyone who is unhappy with life is unhappy for the same reasons. It's by Travis Bradbury. He talks about the things that people believe that, that make them unhappy. Let me just give you a partial list, okay? A partial list. One, life is fair. If you think life is fair, you are going to be unhappy. If you think that other people are going to make your life fair, are going to fix your life, you will be unhappy. You're going to live an unhappy life. As long as you believe that, as long as you expect... I, I tell this to people now, you know, who are upset about Trump uh, winning, you know. If somebody, if you think somebody gave you a, a card exempting you from history, you know, I mean, we've had civil wars. We had a civil war in this country. We've been... We've had a major world war, two major world wars we had to go through. If Donald Trump is your worst nightmare, you just don't know how to dream properly, you know. Life is unfair. Bad things happen. If you don't know that, you're going to be unhappy. Okay. Opportunities, this is an, another belief too, opportunities will fall into my lap. If you think things should just be given to you, if everything's going to be easy, you will be unhappy. Here's another one. Everyone should like me. If your sense of self if your sense of self is dependent on the feelings and words and actions of others, if, if e even like an unseeable microaggression makes you feel bad about being gay or transgender or black or Jewish or anything else, you are going to be unhappy. If I wasted 10 seconds of my life worrying about these guys on Twitter, what they're saying about me, I'm worrying about them. I'm worried about the fact that their guts are twisted into knots. Mine aren't. If you are, if you think everyone should like you, you are going to be unhappy. People should, here's another one, people should agree with me. If you think that good people can't disagree, reasonable people can't disagree, if people don't have completely different viewpoints than you that are absolutely legitimate and absolutely a way forward, you are going to be miserable. You're going to not understand what the hell is going on. You're going to say, well, how, can this, how can this be? All I want to point out about that is that is the left. That's the social justice left, you know? It's like life is fair, life should be fair, opportunities should be given to me, everyone should like me, people should agree with me. That's the social justice left. And if you don't think being happy, you know, <laughs> I won't say that you only have one life, but you only have this life once, and this is an important life. In my religion, folks, in my religion, being joyful is not an option. It's a requirement. It's a commandment. Rejoice. Rejoice evermore. Rejoice always. That's what it says right there in the contract that you sign with God. And so all I'm, all I'm saying to you is like these philosophies, and it's whether the philosophy is your hatred of blacks or Jews or gays or anybody else, or this kind of nonsense that's going on in these universities, you are signing on for one long life of misery. All right. That's the, we made it through two weeks of darkness. Next week, Indiana, 
all will be revealed, maybe more darkness, maybe, who knows, maybe we'll turn the corner, we don't know. Stuff I like, you know, I was doing stuff I like, I was doing uh, classic, uh, classics that I thought you would like, that I thought were really entertaining, and sometimes people are intimidated by them. And so I was going to do Mozart's Hofner Serenade, but in tribute to Carly Fiorina and Ted Cruz, we're going to end with their, their wonderful uh, Irving Berlin duet. Come back next week. We'll see how things turn out. I'm Andrew Claven. This is The Andrew Claven Show. We'll see you then. You don't need Twinkle, do you release that pleasant thing? You're not sick, you're just in.